Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. This morning's scripture reading is Acts 16, verses 19 through 29. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Paul called to a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Maybe see. I started to say that we're missing a good bit of our group, but we group here, don't we? And quality is, uh, and we're glad that you're here. It's wonderful to see all of you here today. We have a lot of folks who are visiting, as Paul said, and I'm just so glad that you can be part of our Sunday morning assembly. The word acapella is a Latin term. Actually, it's two words. Uh, Pella means church. Or chapel. Is expressing, uh, we're expressing that this is singing which is done in the way of the church. Now that's very interesting. probably know this, the, the word acapella means uh, today in common vernacular, we mean without musical accompaniment, without musical instruments to it. It's just singing. That's what it is. Acapella in the manner of the church, in the way that the church or the chapel does this. I want to talk today about our singing. I want to talk today about music and worship. This is something I want to talk about with some frequency, at least once a year, each generation gets this. It's important that we don't let a generation pass without talking about it. Can we use this one? And so here's how I want to do the sermon. We'll have three major points, and I'm going to take some objections at the end. But the, the, the three points go like this. 
Scripture says, with reference to our singing and worship, our music and worship today, a cappella. Sometimes, sometimes people use the word tradition, that it's a Church of Christ tradition to sing like we have done today without musical accompaniment. I resent that. I, I don't appreciate that because what it does is to minimize what the reality is, that the reality is that this is not merely a tradition. It's not merely a preference that we have. It's not merely that we've passed it down and our great-grandparents liked it, so we like it. It's, it's about principles, and that's what this sermon is going to be to unfold. I want to make the case for a cappella music in New Testament worship. So we're going to talk about in first place that Scripture says a cappella. The second point is going to be history says a cappella. The third one is going to be that comparison says a cappella. And then I want to take a few of the most common objections to what, what I will have been teaching. The first point then, let's talk about this first. I want to go to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Here Paul is talking about music and worship. Now I'm going to make reference to a number of different passages. In your New Testament you have, I guess, about seven different specific references to music in New Testament worship. Now, that's not all that's in the Bible. I mean, you have other references to music. You have some in the Old Testament. You have references to music in the book of Revelation. I'm narrowing our discussion down to what we're particularly interested in, which is music in New Testament worship, music in the church. And here's what Paul writes. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Stop. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? May I ask you a question? Does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Now he's going to talk about singing. And, and I, I, I don't really know if the chicken comes before the egg here. I don't know if, if what he's saying is that, that if you sing like we've done with the church today, which is just a remarkable thing to get to do. If we sing like this, and we're singing about the principles and the grace of God and about Jesus Christ, that, that it dwells in us. I, I know this. Music has a way of dwelling in you. And it's, I know that what you do on Monday, it's probably not uncommon for you when you're working to be humming and thinking about some hymn that we've sung in worship. It, it helps this to dwell in you. I know that. But perhaps what he's talking about instead is that that when we've studied the Word of God, when we have renewed our minds, Romans 12, 2, with the Word of God and the things of Jesus, that we come to this building filled up with Jesus Christ. And, and when we are like that, the natural inclination is to express it through song. Now, I don't know, but let's go back to the passage. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now, here's what he says. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, let's parse it out. The, the music in worship demands words, because he says, I want you to teach. What you're doing with music in worship here, when you're assembled together, is teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching. Now, I know that it involves words. You look at the sister, the companion passage that Paul gives us in Ephesians 5.19, and he says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So 
In Ephesians, he says, I want you to speak these things. It's something that you're singing, and when you're singing, I want you speaking. So it involves, it involves words. Here it says that our words are teaching us. So when you're singing this morning, your, your worship, of course, is directed primarily to God. But that's not all. What you're doing is we're teaching one another with these words, and we ingest them into our psyches, into our souls, when we sing them. Over and over again. Teaching, and here's the second word, admonishing. Admonishing is a word that means to, to caution or to correct. And we do that. We, we do that in, in the other songs that we sing that encourage us not to follow sin, but to follow what is true and right. But again, I would just want to point out that What's required here, what is enjoined on us, is music in our worship that involves words. I want you to look at those two words, teaching and admonishing, and be impressed with the fact that that's something that a note or a chord on the piano cannot do. This is kind of music that is not uh, available to musical instruments because it involves the speaking of words. It involves teaching, and it involves correcting and cautioning. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is singing, and it's singing to the Lord. Now, let's go down through some verses of Scripture. Well, I'm going to go ahead and finish this passage, and then we'll do that. And whatever you do in word or deed, I want you to be impressed with the fact that this statement about the authority of Christ is is on the heels of this discussion of our music and worship. Here's the kind of music that we have teaching and admonishing one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In word means what we say, in deed means what we do, and it's in the context of our worship. Now, it's, it's this kind of corporate assembled worship that he's talking about because he says, I want you to sing teaching and admonishing one another. That's really interesting. I mean, to me, it's, 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 uh, it's reciprocal. That's the word that we use. And it means that what we did today is that we're singing to each other. It's reciprocal to one another. It wouldn't do, for example, for, for us to pick out our most talented singer in the church, and we've got some talented singers. It wouldn't be appropriate, wouldn't fit this passage for us to have him or her come up here and sing to the rest because that's not reciprocal. This is something that's done one to another. It's something that's done together, everybody participating. And I would add that in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, in the book of Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 1, where these main verses are found, he says, I'm writing to the church. It was written to everybody in the church. Whatever is taught here is applicable to all of us. And, and what is taught is that in reference to music, it's got to be something that's teaching and admonishing, and it's, it's got to be singing. All right. Now, here's what the Scripture has to say. Walk down with me through other passages that talk about our music and worship. You go to Acts chapter 16 that Keith read a while ago. You remember Paul and Silas were in prison, and the Bible says that at midnight they sang hymns to God. If we do... Just what they did with reference to music, what would we do? Now, there are three possibilities, of course. 
You know, in reference to music, you could sing, or you can play, or you can sing and play. If we do just what they did, what would we do? Would we sing, or would we play, or would we sing and play? We would sing. Go to the next slide. What about Romans chapter 15 and verse 9? That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, for this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. What's involved in that? Singing or playing or singing and playing. What about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15? I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. Be impressed with the fact that that's about teaching and admonishing one another. And, and it involves singing, and that's, that's all that's in by It's a human voice. That's all that's there. Take the next one. What about Ephesians 5.19? I mentioned it a while ago. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. What is it that that's commanding? And if we do just what that command says, will we sing or play or sing and play? Which one? Next one. Here's Hebrews 2.12. In the midst of the church or the assembly, will I sing praise unto you? Same question is applicable. Now here's James chapter 5 and verse 13. Is anybody cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Now, I know what you may be thinking is, I just, I'm not sure you're, you're treating this fairly, Glenn. Shouldn't you also produce the verses that talk about using instrumental music in worship? And the problem with that is there are none. They don't exist with reference to New Testament worship that you and I are practicing right now. There are none. Here's what the instructions are. So when you talk about the Scripture, now you can go to the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that in just a couple of minutes. You can go to the Old Testament and you find where in the Law of Moses that they participated in this. You can go to the book of Revelation and you can find out uh, symbolically where uh, people are going to have harps in heaven. We're going to see that. I, But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about right here and right now in New Testament worship. And I'm just saying that Scripture says a cappella. A cappella. Now here's number two. History says a cappella. I want to read to you from Psalm 150, beginning in verse 3. It's a beautiful psalm. Every verse is about praising God. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. How do you like that? And it's very common for people who talk about this and who want to use instrumental music in their worship today to say, it's in the Bible. It's in in the Bible. The problem with that is that it's not in the New Testament. Now, you, you think about the Old Testament, and we better be very careful about this. Galatians 5 says that, that if you start dipping into the Old Testament, the old law for your, your practices, you're obligated to the whole thing. You couldn't be saved anyhow because you wouldn't have the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament uh, has, has instrumental music in it. We have Psalm 150, and so far as I can tell, it was something which is approved by God. You don't see God saying, I don't like it. I, I'm, I'm against this, this being done by David. Apparently from Psalm 150, this is what was done in praise to God, and God did not rebuke. But when you get to the New Testament, it's not there. 
Now, that tells you a lot. Do you suppose the first Christians, these early Christians in the first century, didn't know about Psalm 150? You think they didn't know about that? Furthermore, you know, you have a 400-year gap between the Old and New Testaments. I mean, you, you think that, that the New Testament Christians didn't have instruments of music to play? I mean, this was a long time before that. And look at all the instruments. You can read those and you can almost hear them, can't you? But when you get to the New Testament, those first century Christians did not use those instruments. They knew that they existed. I think it's a fair assumption that like as in this church, you had people who could play them and play them well. It's just dramatic that when you get to the New Testament, the instruments are distinguished by their absence. They knew about them. They knew how to play them. They had them available, readily available to them, but they did not play them in their worship. You have no reference to them playing them. But now hold on. I want to to take this a step further. What about secular history? What does secular history say about the church and about instrumental music? This is really interesting to me because we've raised a whole generation now of people in Christendom who have no idea about the history, at least in mainline denominations, have no idea that the major players, the major people in their faith, the founders of their faith, objected to the use of instrumental music in worship and for the very same reasons that I'm talking about today. Follow me. Here's John Calvin. Assumed to be, believed to be, the founder of the Presbyterian Church. Musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of the lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. Now, you know what? He was against it. John Calvin. When you read Adam Clark's commentary, and Adam Clark was one of the greatest Methodist commentators that that ever was, and I've got a set of or two of his commenta- commentaries, and I think much of what he wrote was very good. But when it came to this, he made reference to John Wesley. Was there ever a, a more renowned Methodist than John Wesley? And Clark quotes from Wesley, and here's what he says. The late venerable and most eminent divine, the Reverend John Wesley, who was a lover of music and an elegant poet, when asked of his opinion of instruments of music being introduced into the chapels of the Methodists, said in his terse and powerful manner, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they're neither seen nor heard. What John Wesley think about it? Isn't that interesting? I would say that next that Spurgeon was probably, Charles Spurgeon was probably the greatest Baptist preacher that ever lived. I doubt that, I doubt that many people would disagree with that. Spurgeon is reputed to be one of the most important Baptist preachers in their history. Look what he said about it. David appears to have had a particular remembrance of the theme of the pilgrims. And assuredly, it's the most delightful part of a worship. He's talking about singing. And that which comes nearest to the adoration of heaven. What a degradation to supplant the intelligent songs of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet the refined niceties of a choir, 
or the blowing off of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. I doubt many Baptists today are aware of the fact that the practice that now is just assumed to be what everybody does was not always that way. As a matter of fact, in in relative historic times and by the founders of these religions or the the respected members of these religions, they, they resisted this. They rejected instrumental music in their worship and they did so on the same basis as what we are talking about this morning. I think that's very important. We have raised a generation that doesn't know about this. And you, I, when we were, did I mention that we went to Israel recently? And you're going to have to put up with me making reference to Israel, I'm afraid, for a little while until I get out of my system. But uh, we would sing. Now, now the, these Christians who, New Testament Christians, got together for this trip, and we went over and we, we went through all these sites that were just amazing, wonderful things to see in Israel with reference to our, our heritage uh, in the scriptures. And, and the beautiful thing about going, and I would encourage you to do this, to, if you go one day, and I hope you can, but, but just go with a, a group that's exclusively New Testament Christians because you have this freedom. And you, so whenever you want to pray, you, whenever you want to sing, we would sing. We would, when we just found a spot that we wanted to sing a hymn, we would sing. And, and we would open the Bible and read from it. And we had a, just a wonderful uh, closeness that we developed. But, but about singing, here is the interesting thing. I mean, in Israel, you have all these people who are like us that are sort of tourists. We came to see and to study, and they're everywhere, and they come from all different countries, of course. And presumably the majority of them, and I don't know this, but a lot of them are professing Christians from different stripes. I don't know their beliefs, but professing Christians. But I'll tell you this, we, we were... Christians from different places in the country. We hadn't ever sung together before, but we come from assemblies like this one, and so we're accustomed to a cappella congregational singing. And when we would sing, people would gather around. We're not trained singers. We're just Christians who sing. But I'm telling you, it'd draw a crowd every single time. And people would pull out their phones and they'd start recording this. I'm not saying this to say, wow, we were great singers. I doubt that was true. But what is true is that those people aren't used to this. They haven't seen this before. This is, they thought, I mean, and when we finished, they would applaud. You know why? They thought, wow, this is terrific. People can, they can sing. This must, must be a chorus from somewhere. That is not true. We hardly knew one another when we started, and we just, somebody would start a song, and we would just sing. You get my point? My point isn't that we were high quality. The, the point is that people aren't used to this. We've raised a whole generation from these different denominations and other religious groups, and they cannot imagine Music and worship that isn't accompanied by instruments. They cannot even conceive of that. History says a cappella. Scripture says a cappella. History says a cappella. And here's the third one. And I, I, I put this in because this one is so important to me. Come back and let me get catch that. I forgot about this one. Come back. I want to give you one more quote, all right? This, this is a work from Joseph Bigham. It took him 20 years to write it. It was finished somewhere between 1708 and 1722. 
And this is a renowned work. And, and here's the quote that I want you to get. Music in churches <clears throat> is as ancient as the apostles, but instrumental music not so. For it is now generally agreed by learned men that the use of organs came into the church since the time of Thomas Aquinas, 1250 A.D. For he is, for in his sums has these words, Our church does not use mechanical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God with all, that she may not seem to Judaize. And by that he means that she wouldn't be seen as going back to the Old Testament for faith and practice. That's how they would equate that. I just want you to see that it was a thousand years, not just by this authority, but by other secular authorities. Historians say that, that instrumental music in the churches wasn't popularly used until about a thousand years after the church had its beginning, about a millennium, a thousand years, because the early church did not use it. History says a cappella. Here's number three. Comparison says a cappella. And this one is a kind of a different kind of point. You wouldn't understand what I'm saying until I express it by the title. But I mean this. There are five avenues of worship in the New Testament. I like to use that terminology. Uh, uh, Avenues of worship. Through each of these, we offer our obeisance to God. Through each of these avenues this morning, we are offering our hearts to God. And you know that it involves the eating of the Lord's Supper. It involves giving of our means. It involves preaching the Word of God. It involves praying, and it involves singing. Those are the five avenues of worship commanded for our Lord's Day Sunday worship when we assemble together. And each one of them has to have, a, it has to have some distinctiveness about it, some exclusivity, if you please. Every one of them has to have some exclusivity in order to be valid. And, and I, I think that we intuitively know this. I, I just think that, I think that this is so terribly obvious. But when you talk about instrumental music in worship, it's really important that you compare music of, in worship to other avenues of worship. So, for example, uh, you, you think in music, and you have New Testament says singing, Well, there's another kind of, another form of music, which is instrumental. Those are two very distinctive things. So we'll we'll sing that's what is authorized in Scripture, and we will add instruments of music. How would that look if you were talking about prayer? What 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 if you did the same thing to prayer in worship? What would that be like? What would it take to duplicate that with reference to prayer? And the answer is that we would have the authority to pray to our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. But suppose we did that. You know, a man got up and he leads prayer and he prays to God the Father. But then, but then he starts praying to Mary. That'd be all right? Would you object to that? Or what if he starts praying after he's praying to God the Father for a little while? And then he adds some, some lines in there, some petitions to Muhammad. Or some, what if he, what if he adds, what if he adds some, somebody else in there? What would you say about that? I think that we would come up in arms. I think we would say, you've got to stop that. That can't be right. What if, what if he says, but the Bible doesn't say, don't pray to Muhammad? You'd say, what it does say is, we should pray to the Father like this, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that's an exclusive thing. That creates exclusivity. What, what would you say about the scriptures? And so whenever a man comes to this pulpit, 
our vow to you is that he's going to preach the scriptures, right? You should, there's a predictability about that. You just should know that's what's going to happen every single time. That's a vow. Suppose he preaches from this, because that's what's authorized to the scripture, the whole counsel of God. What, what if he preaches the, all scriptures given by inspiration of God? What if he comes up here and he preaches from the scriptures for a while, and then he preaches from the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith? Bible doesn't say not to do that. Would you object to that? Of course you would. Why? Why? And the answer is because there's an exclusivity attached. My favorite one is the Lord's Supper because I think this is just the easiest one to see. So what are we authorized to do in the Lord's Supper? The unleavened bread. We use the unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 26 and Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and he said, I want you to use unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. You think it'd be okay to maybe add another food item in there to the Lord's Supper? Well, I mean, I, what about shrimp? I don't mean to be silly. I'm not trying to be silly. I'm just, I'm just want to make this point. Everybody in here that has his head screwed on straight, like, like shrimp, they have the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine and some boiled shrimp or a piece of beef. Because, I mean, what if other people were doing it? What if lots of other people were doing it? And it was just the thing, you know. And, and if you don't do it, you're going to be kind of, well, weird. You're going to be considered strange if you don't do it. Would you do it? And I, I believe your answer is no. I, I believe your answer would be emphatically no. And why not? It's, it isn't because the Bible says don't do it. It's because we have some exclusivity for this to mean anything. We have to start with what does the Bible authorize? What does it authorize? And what is authorized in reference to the Lord's Supper is unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. Make that applicable now to our singing. It isn't that they didn't know about instrumental music. It isn't that they, that, that they didn't know about the Old Testament. It isn't that they couldn't play one. It's, that, it's simply that what he said was, I want you to sing. Said it over and over again. And so that's what we must do. All right, one more thing then. Let's talk about some objections. Let's just do four. Number one, they were used in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I've been talking about this, but just one more point about this. If something is written in the Psalms, and by the way, it's right for us to sing Psalms, but it is inaccurate to say that anything that's taught anywhere in the Psalms would be okay to incorporate in worship. For example, in Psalm 66, you, of course, have animal sacrifices. It would be a sin for us to presume to offer animal sacrifices in our worship, wouldn't it? You know why? We have one sacrifice for all. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. To offer animal sacrifices would be wickedness today. It would be simply wrong. And Galatians chapter 5, we'd have to go back to doing all the old law if we choose some of it. And that would be wrong. The fact that it was used in the Old Testament is not an argument for it. I would, I would say that it's an argument against using the instruments. And the reason is, and I don't want to re- replow the ground, but the point is that when you get to the New Testament, they know about that passage and those passages. They know about all of this stuff. And they're not going to use them in the New Testament. All right, now here's the second objection. The word solo. I won't go far with this, but just to, to make sure you understand it. 
Here's one of the main arguments, which is in Ephesians 5 and 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. The word, Greek word for making melody is solo. And solo means to pluck or to strum. And so the argument goes that here's the finally we have it, finally we found it. Here's the authority for having instruments of music in our worship. And a problem, couple of problems with that. The, the, the word itself is, is kind of like, um, we, we had a, an ice cream truck come by our house the other day, and, and Cindy remembered it from her childhood. I remembered that too, and she said, let's go, and they got the truck, and the, the children, the grandchildren got ice cream. The only thing was, back then, I think it was about 50 cents, this truck takes a credit card for ice cream, but that's beside my point. And the kids got them, and, and Ezra and Colliana and Liza, they would lick that. You can use the word lick in a sentence, but it doesn't tell you what is licked. In this case, it was the ice cream. Solo is like that. It, it means to, to, to pluck or to strum, but it doesn't tell you what is plucked or strummed. You always have to see it in a sentence. And in this sentence, Ephesians 5.19 says that, that we're to solo in our hearts, in our hearts, whatever instrument you want to play in worship is appropriate, in fact, commanded, so long as it's in your heart. That's what's authorized right there. And I would just one more time add this onto this word solo, is that those early Christians did not use mechanical instruments of music, but they knew what the Greek word solo was. They knew that and didn't use them. I would add one more thing. This is the book of Ephesians, and when you start the book, it says that it's applicable to the whole church. This is for the whole church. If it was the case that solo in this verse, soloing in your heart, if it was the case that it meant we had to play musical instruments, it would be teaching that every member of the church in worship would need to play one. Because that's what the injunction is. That's what the example or command is here. Now, here's the third one. The New Testament doesn't say not to use it. Don't ever fall for this argument. Listen, the New Testament doesn't say, I prohibit you from practicing infant baptism. Now, how would you respond to that? The Bible doesn't say not to baptize the babies. And you would respond by saying, wait, wait. The New Testament does not authorize it. And furthermore, what baptism is for cannot be done by babies. Repent and be baptized. Babies can't repent. They don't have sins for which to repent. You, you would argue it's inappropriate, and just because there's not an express prohibition does not mean it's all right to do it. And here's the fourth one. Now, I tag this on here because I think this is probably the main one. I don't, I don't believe that anybody uses them. That's a strong, I don't know. I, I find it hard to believe that anybody uses them because they believe God commands it. <coughs> That's not true. A study of, just a cursory study of Scripture will demonstrate that. People don't use them because they think God instructed them to do it. They do it because they like it. They do it because they like it. Our worship to God, and this is personal. You make this personal in your own life, and I must too. My worship cannot be about me. It cannot degenerate down to where it's about my preferences because if I ever do that, if I get to that point, then I'm not worshiping him at all. I'm worshiping me. 
the only relevant question about any of the avenues of worship, including music in worship, the only relevant question is, what can I do to please God? What do I do to please him? Because my obeisance is to go to him. I want to worship him. You've been very kind to listen. It isn't the case that the church of Christ doesn't have music in their worship. It is the case that the New Testament teaches us that we should have singing in our worship and that that's what God wants. Would that it was the case that, that nobody, nobody stood around and applauded and took pictures when they hear us sing because I wish it was the case that in every church people were just accustomed to this. This is just what everybody did because that's what the Bible says. Aren't you thankful for the scriptures? I just want to be a Christian. I just want to be a simple New Testament Christian and a disciple of Christ. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.